Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and I am joined for the new year by Phoebe Watson. Hello! It's lovely to be back. Obviously, we had January off, so at this very late stage in the year, we are officially wishing you all a very happy new year. Yeah. And I have begun my new year, as it seems most people have, by getting a cold. So apolog- a great way to start. <laughs> Apologies if you can hear it in my voice. I will probably edit out any coughing fits that I have in the middle of this. <laughs> but other than that, we should be all guns blazing for the season to come. And yeah, we are delighted to be back talking to you again. It's nice to be back. And Phoebe has suggested, before we get into the main topic of this episode, Phoebe reminded me that there's probably quite a few people who have been listening for a while but haven't uh, undergone the penance of going going all the way back to our very first episodes. And so we were, I think we were talking to some people, was it at the... Yeah. The Ethics and Culture Conference in particular, I felt like when we went to that in the States, that I realized that people sort of knew me from the podcast, but also didn't really know who I was. And yeah, this happened to me even more distinctly at the UT1000 um, retreat before Christmas, mm. where I got recognized from the sound of my voice, mm. which had never happened before. Uh, shout out to Daniela. Um, but... She, I realized talking to her that there were some very basic facts about who I am mm-hmm. that she had no clue about. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> We should, we, we should probably talk about this. We should probably reintroduce ourselves. We're, I think we are officially four years into the podcast now. So it is probably, uh, we are well overdue a reintroduction. <laughs> yeah, we started uh, the end of 2018, wasn't it? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. So, Long time ago. Yeah, it really is. So yeah, just to begin us off with this episode, we're not going to spend very much time on this, but just maybe it's worth reintroducing ourselves. As, I, as I've as i already said at the top of this episode, my name is Rachel Sherlock and Phoebe Watson is here with me. And we get a lot of use out of the Sherlock and Watson joke. Yes, even more than you might think just from the podcast, which is the, the other thing about us is that Phoebe and I have been friends since university where we used to share a house together. And then eight years ago, a very long time ago now, mm-hmm. we were both moving to Dublin at the same time. And so we decided to share a flat together once again and reunite Sherlock and Watson and yeah we've been in that flat ever since and so yeah we are not only uh, podcasting friends but we are housemates that we are and and good friends overall (laughs) our friendship has survived absolutely grown stronger and so yeah maybe to give a little bit of background myself I said we met at university We, we both went to university in Cork in Ireland I studied music and English And I went on and kind of essentially my master's focused on my English part of my degree, but the master's itself was on uh, Viking and Anglo-Saxon studies, which I did at the University of Nottingham and was a wonderful experience, one of the best years of my life. And ever since then, I've worked a kind of variety of jobs in publishing, in digital marketing, in writing for book websites, that kind of area. And so, yeah, my, my experience of study and work has been kind of in English adjacent fields I would say. 
But Rachel, what about your faith story? Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess this this is primarily a, a, a religious podcast. And so, yeah, I should mention that. I have often joked, We Phoebe and I used to both volunteer, Phoebe still does, for a group called U2000, you mentioned it already, which runs prayer groups and retreats for young people, young Catholics in Ireland. And uh, at our major retreats, we would always be struggling to keep to our schedule and there would be a slot in the schedule for testimonies. And I used to joke that whenever we were running over time on our uh, on our schedule, they should just sign me up to do the testimony because my testimony is <laughs> one of the shortest you will ever hear. I was very fortunate enough to be raised Catholic uh, with my wonderful family, my parents and my brother Michael. And I just found a lot of joy in my faith early on and I've never left it. And that's my Catholic story. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I thought I had a very similar story, but replaced Catholic with Christian mm-hmm. when I was 18 and went to college and met you guys. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up in a Church of Ireland evangelical background. For anyone not familiar with what that means. Church of Ireland, similar to the Church of England, Anglican in in America, sometimes called Episcopalian. So think a mixture of like hymns and liturgy, but also like some more Baptist or like freestyle worship mixed in there. But then in college, I converted to Catholicism partly through encountering a lot of the writings of C.S. Lewis and being taught to expect logic in my faith. And then coming to understand the Catholic Church better and see the logic in that faith. And then the beauty of it and being drawn into it, but primarily intellectual first. So yeah, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, Mm -hmm. just like you're a big Tolkien fan. Yes. (laughs) Those are our two like kind of major inklings to begin with. Um, And I'm also a civil engineer working in Dublin. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I don't have an English background. I just love books. <laughs> yeah. I love reading and love discussing books. Mm-hmm. It's something that was part of our friendship early on. And yeah, as I said, four years ago, I decided to set up this podcast because I wanted a space to have the kinds of discussions that I was interested in having and was lucky enough to be having with my friends. And so for the most part, the people that you hear on this podcast are just friends of mine. Occasionally we get in other writers or podcasters, although I've been lucky enough to now count at least some of those people who I've met through the podcast as friends. So it's working both ways now. But yeah, it's it's been really interesting setting up this podcast and like having a space to just talk about the things that I find interesting that... I feel like inform my faith, but also are really driving forces in the things that I like to read about or movies I like to watch, music I like to listen to, all of those things and how they can all interact. And I just feel very blessed to be surrounded by people who are willing to have sort of extended conversations with me on this podcast. So yeah, I think that's a a fairly basic introduction yeah, to, I think so. to who we are and what we do. As we've kind of mentioned, I do have some academic background in this area but I do also really like that this largely just comes from a lay person's perspective and not a professional's and not a not a theologian right that it's just about engaging with things and thinking about them and enjoying them enough to pay them attention 
Yeah, and I've learned so much through the podcast about doing that better as well. Which in some ways actually segues very nicely into what we want to talk about for this episode because it relates to a particular New Year's resolution that I have set myself. Which is kind of similar to one we set two years ago. Yeah. Uh, so this Referenced. Year, yeah, this year I want to learn off all of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which is quite a long poem by T.S. Eliot. If you think that's very ambitious, it's not really because I fortunately already know, I would say about 70% of it in various chunks. It's really just a question of sitting down and making sure I can line up all the chunks in in the correct order. You also have an outrageously good memory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I am blessed with a good memory. But yeah, it's interesting because the the poem itself is one that we're going to come back to and talk about a little bit later in this episode to talk about why it's particularly important to me and how it's followed me throughout my life. But before we get to that, I kind of actually just wanted to talk about why I enjoy the process of learning things off and why I think it's important. And then to talk about poetry in general and its place and why it's important and not just a sort of add-on or extra or the hobby of a like a niche group of people and how those two things relate I think obviously you can learn off prose I know lots of quotes in my head I really enjoy that but poetry in particular is a beautiful place to start trying to learn some things off and I just think it's a beautiful thing that you can do to just give yourself little snippets of poetry to have in your heart and in your mind. We talked a little bit about this uh, just just a year ago in our episode on the Shawshank Redemption, actually, and surprisingly enough. And I think we'd even talked about it before that, mm. when we'd been making New Year's resolutions to try and learn something off every month. Yeah. Which kind of went by the wayside after a little while, as most New Year's resolutions do. <laughs> but even the process of that was really interesting in coming back to things that we had had sort of by heart before yeah and actually learning the exact wording of them and like realizing their place in our lives yeah yeah exactly and so to to spend just a moment talking about this idea of learning things off i want to pull up a a quote and i believe it's a quote that we did pull out for the shawshank redemption episode but it's worth coming back to again and it's a quote from the scholar and essayist george steiner who escaped nazi encroachment in france In terms of, he wrote a lot about schooling and education, but he said, most of present schooling is organized amnesia. It takes away the arts of remembrance. It leaves people with very little inner ballast. Now that's fine when all is going well. When all is going well and you're beautiful, young and earning a lot, then you can sail very lightly before the wind. Be careful. When things start going wrong, health, loneliness, the most natural things what you carry inside you they can't take away from you put luggage inside that's the only way i can express it so that when the wind starts blowing very hard you have your ballast we are taking that away from our young and leaving them very often tremendously empty and i think that's a beautiful way of putting it that when we take the time to commit quotes and and we're going to come into specifically talking about it in terms of that this also does incorporate prayers and hymns and things like that but when we take the time to commit to learning off those things and having them within us and having them 
be part of our souls, that there is something that that gives us in terms of building up an inner world, building up a, a resource, building up a way of looking at the world and experiencing and understanding ourselves in the world. That when we have these, you know, I think I have one of the quotes here that says that like poetry is, are, are the best words in the best order. <laughs> and that when we have those things that they they do really give us something when we when we make sure that we have them with us at all times. Yeah, that there's something even in the sound of the words coming mm-hmm. back to us, not just the ideas they represent. Yeah. Because it's easy to think, oh, but that's just an idea. Yeah. I don't need to know that by heart. Yeah. Or but I can Google this at any time. I can Google time. that at any time. But it's the like, re-echoing of the sounds in your mind. Yeah. Uh, and not just for when it's dark and gloomy, mm-hmm. but also to enhance pleasant experiences yeah. and lift the mundane. Absolutely. And like I said, I think this can relate to prose. I think you can have any kinds of words in your mind. I think I was saying to you as well that like, we think it's impossible to learn off a poem, but how many of us can recite endless songs? I, I, I'm not trying to say that like, oh, well, if you know a pop song, you should be able to recite Shakespeare. But that like, it's the same principle in terms of songs are easy to learn because there's a melody and there's rhythm and that like the repeated refrains, all of these things. But that, that applies to poetry a lot. Yeah, but also the flip side of that is that by knowing songs by heart, mm-hmm. particularly if they're ones you like because you like the lyrics of them. Yeah you probably already know some form of poetry. Yeah. If you know hymns by heart, if you know prayers by heart, there is part of the poetry that you do already know. Mm -hmm. It's not just some monumental task that we're suggesting you do to have inner ballast. Yeah. Because when I first hear that straight cold, I'm like, how do I do that? I can't do that. I don't have that. Yeah. And then you start thinking about it less aggressively mm-hmm. and more in terms of oh, what do I know by heart yeah or just what does come back to me mm-hmm. and finding those things out and pulling them out and sometimes you have to go back and find the original and correct the phrasing because your mind has changed the wording yeah yeah exactly but that yeah that these things are all interlinked and we have more than we think And I have a a quote here by an incredible poet, and he he happens to be a Catholic poet, but one of the kind of foremost poets of our age, Dana Joya. And he has an article in First Things called Christianity and Poetry, where he says, poetry is the most concise, expressive and memorable way of using words. It is a special way of speaking that shapes the sound and rhythm of words. In the ancient world, most poems were sung or chanted. That musical identity remains central to the art. A poem is speech raised to the level of a song. It casts a momentary spell over the listener. People hear it differently from ordinary talk. They become more alert to every level of meaning. Poetry is, to borrow a phrase from Ezra Pound, language charged with meaning to the utmost possible degree. And so in that way, all of these things, all of these scraps, all of these snippets, they stay with us because in some ways that like there's something poetic, even when it's a prose sentence or even when it's in a very different context than just a formal poem, but that like poetry is the expression of our our most transcendent and our most perfect expression that we can manage when it's done right. And I think the reason why I thought it would be a good idea to do this episode is because I think 
poetry tends to strike fear into the hearts of a lot of people and it feels very esoteric and it can feel hard to access. In some ways it can feel like, you know, if you want to be someone who reads a lot, you can think, well, if I just sit down and read some poems, like how long could that take? But it requires so much more mental engagement than sitting down and even reading a story. Or it can feel like something that was shoved into you in school Mm -hmm. and left ever since. Yeah, yeah. And what I'm kind of trying to get at for this episode is actually more to, to show how poetry is something that is both very vital to our experience of life and particularly as Catholics and how we see the world and how we understand the world, but also as something that is built into our every day, that it's something that gives beauty and meaning and can be very kind of mundane in the way that we approach it. And I came across this beautiful article by the amazing Irish poet Seamus Heaney. It was in the Boston Review and it's about his literary influences and I was thrilled to find that he was talking about T.S. Eliot. So uh, we've I've done an episode on T.S. Eliot before for this podcast which I'm very proud of but I think it only takes people about 10 seconds of talking to me to for me to start referencing how much I love T.S. Eliot. Less. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was very gratifying to read this article but it really kind of encapsulates some of my own feelings. Not that I am attempting to say that I'm anyway like Seamus Heaney, but it was very gratifying to read this article. But he begins by saying that he came across these very intimidating books of T.S. Eliot and just didn't know what to do with them. And he says, Later, during my first year at Queen's University, when I read in E.M. Forster's Howard's End an account of the character called Leonard Bast as somebody doomed forever to be familiar with the outside of books. My identification was not with the privileged narrative voice, but with Bast himself, pathetic scrambler on the edge of literacy. But he goes on to say, all this persuades me that what is to be learned from Eliot is the double-edged nature of poetry reality, first encountered as a strange fact of culture. Poetry is internalised over the years until it becomes, as they say, second nature. Poetry that was originally beyond you, generating the need to understand and overcome its strangeness, becomes in the end a familiar path within you, along which your imagination opens pleasurably backwards towards an origin and a seclusion. Your last state is therefore a thousand times better than your first, for the experience of poetry is one that truly deepens and fortifies itself with reenactment. You can really tell he's a poet. Truly. I love that phrase, doomed forever to be familiar with the outside of books. (laughs) Yeah, and that like making the case of taking the time and to not do that, to to actually engage in these books that at, at first glance feel like they're just going to be this enormous obstacle. But they're also that it's okay to read the poem once and not get it. Yeah. And learn it by heart and not get it. Yeah. Yeah. And he uh, there's a one final quote that he has that he says, he shows how poetic vocation in- entails the disciplining of a habit of expression until it becomes fundamental to the whole conduct of a life. Mm. And now that's talking about writing poetry, but I do think that it just speaks to the way in which he's saying that it actually becomes incorporated into everything that you're 
that you do, but that you're right, Phoebe, that at the same time, there can be such a focus on understanding and getting every reference and knowing everything to do with a poem. There's a a new book that's out by Word on Fire, which is an anthology of a hundred great Catholic poems. And it's, it was compiled by Sally Reed and she has a, a lovely introduction at the start of it. But she says, she specifically talks about this kind of, you know, school laden technique of overbearing analysis. And we're actually going to talk a little bit later about how actually There's a lot to be said for learning poems at school and learning them off by heart at school and that these are things that are important. And I think even with what Seamus Heaney is saying, Mm. that what you learn in childhood is what starts treading those paths early. Yeah, yeah. But that at the same time, she says, poems were not riddles. There was not one answer that clever readers understood. I have tried to convince people that poetry is like music. We should let it wash over us, listening to the sounds and responding instinctively. And over the years, I've witnessed similar experiences to my own occurring again and again. Even people who profess no interest in poetry, who did not understand it or who had never read it, would ask if they could photocopy a page or stay after a session to write out some lines. Educated or not, Poetry lover or no, in my experience, anyone with a story of their own is hungry for the truth and consolation that poetry can bring. That's so good. It's so entwined with our love of story in general. Mm. And then taking that further to be a love of story expressed in like very condensed words. Mm -hmm. And to get at the essential truths. Yeah. And I think that's what actually Sally in that introduction does talks a lot about, which I think is maybe to spend a little bit of time thinking about why poetry is important to Catholics specifically and to the way that we understand our faith. Because I think, as with all of these things like painting and sculpture and art, like they, it's very easy to treat them as extras. And I think actually she makes a really compelling case for poetry being the language of Catholicism, that actually that our faith is in some way kind of incomprehensible without it, which is a really bold statement to make. Yeah, it really is. But I think just thinking about this now, it's really telling that one of our greatest theologians, Mm. um, St. Thomas Aquinas, is also the one who wrote the beautiful poetry about the Eucharist. Mm. And that there's something in that combination of theology and the search for truth Mm. and the expression of that truth in words. Mm. Um, Not in words of explanation, but in condensed words that try and convey the whole meaning rather than parts of it. And that poetry is is necessary for that because it communicates that transcendent reality that like the, the the things in life that are more than the sum of their parts like I think it was interesting there was an article I was reading in preparation for this which was kind of chastising people who were complaining about and uh, which we actually talked about in an episode of the podcast the kind of commodification of of autumn but they were saying that like autumn is you know, while we may express it through pumpkin spice lattes these days, but that there's still something worth celebrating in a season and that we can turn to poetry and find it there. And that more than that, that like, if you want people to care about the environment, you should teach them poetry, that you can't replace 
the poetry of autumn with an essay on global warming. That yeah, I love that argument. Yeah. <laughs> if you want them to care about the environment, teach them to love it mm. and teach them to love it through poetry. Yeah. He says, um, because poets practice noticing, they reveal the truth about the world that goes beyond a single novelty coffee drink. What a student can get from engaging with poetry, starting in elementary school or earlier, cannot be substituted by 10 informational essays on global warming. Exactly. And so, you know, in that very basic way, we're just talking about an appreciation of a season, of nature, of the world around us. But for Catholics, we take it so much further and to say that the, that poetry allows us to enter into some of the mystery that is central to our faith and that poetry is is fundamental to the way that we express it. Yeah, and I think that what you were saying earlier about the well-trodden path and mm-hmm. knowing something before you know the meaning of it yeah. is so integral to our faith as well. Mm. That in some ways you learn it and then you learn the meaning of it by going over it and going into it. Mm, yeah, yeah. And that for this this particular episode of the podcast, I think I was keen to, and we're going to be looking at some of the examples of poetry that has spoken the most to us, uh, but we haven't really picked out one particular area which we could only mainly because we could spend ages talking about this in particular but in terms of specifically religious poetry and more specifically like as we've said hymns prayers the divine office mass so many of these things are actually poetry that like I think I read somewhere that about 30% of scripture is poetry. I just realized I have a very vivid memory from our first year living together in college Mm. where you recited the Salve Regina to me as poetry, as an example of the poetry of Our Lady and the poetry of the Catholic Church. Wow. I I have to... I am so surprised that I remember that, <laughs> but I do, because it's also tied to then when I became Catholic, mm. I had to learn these prayers. Yeah. The prayers that you learn in childhood, I had to go and learn. Mm. Um, and also I went and learned them in Irish as well. Yeah. That learning them even in a different language. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was really part of incorporating the culture and mentality of Catholicism. Yeah, absolutely. And that those, those words are so beautiful and so deeply ingrained in our souls because of their poetic value. And that I think it's really telling that at so many points in the scripture when the emotion is at its fever pitch is when you get these canticles or you, you know, you get yeah. the, the exclamation of, of Our Lady when she's greeted by Elizabeth. Right. And that those then become the canticles that we say in the divine office. Yeah. That they're linked to those expressions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was reading somewhere else as well, which was pointing out that while our Lord doesn't necessarily recite poems, but he tells parables, he mm-hmm. uses metaphor, he uses simile, that like he's using these poetic language techniques in order to communicate he's not actually doing a whole load of listing out of rules and regulations or even like philosophical treaties and in some ways he's just telling stories it's not leviticus right right and so this is why i just think it's easy to 
to relegate poetry to kind of a corner and say that we should be focusing on praying without ever seeing that praying itself is engaging with poetry. Yeah, and also that yeah, the flip side of that is what we say about knowing more poetry than you think you do. Mm-hmm. That by knowing these things, you have a grounding in poetry that you can build on. Yeah, absolutely. And that they also really help. What you were saying with parables mm. is that delving into the sacramental of understanding language of metaphor Mm. that it's teaching you to grapple with language yeah i found it really interesting actually to go back to that that compendium of 100 great catholic poems in the introduction sally reed kind of made an interesting comparison which i found very helpful where she talks about as i lined up in those early days to receive the eucharist i thought about how being in the church is like stepping into a poem take a famous line like Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Shakespeare conjures in his perfect words the colours, flowers and beauty of a day. In a poetic sense, the beloved of that sonnet then becomes the day and the day becomes her. The poet will never know a summer day without thinking of her, nor of her without thinking of a summer's day. That is what metaphors do. They couple two separate entities by what they have in common. But in reality, the woman and the day remain distinct. Mm. And then to go on to talk about, obviously, when we're talking about things like transubstantiation, it's more than just the metaphor of words. But that when we actually have the tools to deal with things like metaphors, that we're beginning to get the tools that allows us to even like kind of begin to enter into the mystery of transubstantiation. Yeah, and that you're also faced with something that you can't fully comprehend Mm. and that you have to mull over and delve into. Mm. And I think that's something that poetry challenges us to do. Yeah. Because it doesn't give us the answer straight away. Yeah, absolutely. They're even just in the, like, the cultivation of sitting and reflecting and taking time to think about things is an important skill that is needed for our faith lives as well and we really need to cultivate it better yes (laughs) and yeah there was another article that you found from word on fire about the same book where they say when the fog is cleared and we get at the true definition of poetry we find its presence everywhere in catholicism the scriptures the mass the prayers of the mystics and the monks, and the very nature of God. God himself is a poet. In the first verses of Genesis, by an act of speech, God brings about reality from nothing. To paraphrase the classic formulation, God's engagement with the depth of his own being in the Trinity overflows into the creation of the world. All that is out of reach, unfathomable, impossible, is grasped by the word, who was there at the beginning. This is hardly hyperbole, because God made man in his own image and bestowed him with the same power in a lesser degree, as evidenced in his naming of the animals. In fact, by virtue of his own created nature, the human person is a poem all his own. His existence is a particular expression of the concrete but mysterious act of God that takes form in his individual vocation. This reveals why all people, especially Catholics, need poetry and lack something essential without it, because their vision of reality is ipso facto hindered by not enunciating what occurs at the ground of our being. We become, as T.S. Eliot said, hollow men. That's beautiful. I love that so much. And I love know. that like relation to 
creation. Mm. Yeah, I think Tolkien would appreciate it. Tolkien would appreciate it. <laughs> so would Lewis, to be fair. Yes. And and I appreciate the T.S. Eliot reference <laughs> at the end. It, I just love how it permeates everything in creation. It's just mm. such a, a beautiful way of looking at the world. And I think that's really important because I think, as I've mentioned before, poetry really suffers from that sense of it being niche and for an elite and kind of something set apart. Or something boring and uninteresting that only the like geeks are interested in. Yeah, I can see that as well. And I think it was interesting that there was uh, an article by James Matthew Wilson, who, again, has done amazing work for poetry at the moment. And actually, speaking of which, we referenced being at the Ethics and Culture Conference, and we were so blessed to be able to speak to Mary Finnegan at that, who runs Wise Blood Books. Mm -hmm. And there were so many books that they have of poetry and about poetry, and we could only take home one or two in our suitcases. And it was so funny, because I was trying to get ready for this episode, and I kept looking at their catalogue of books, being like, I wish we had brought home this one, and I could have read it, or I could have referenced it. Uh, So if anyone is interested in delving into this area more, please go to their website, look at their catalogue. There's some amazing work in there. And yeah, they're doing amazing work in terms of publishing both poetry and the the critical writing about poetry. But there, there was one book in particular by James Matthew Wilson that I was kind of cursing the sky that we hadn't got a copy of. Wasn't the one that I had bought but given away? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whoops. Whoopsies. <laughs> well, the friend I gave it to deserved it, so you know. Yes. Uh, but I did have access to an article he wrote called The Integral Humanism of Poetry, where he talks about, he puts it in reference to the picture of Dorian Gray and all of these aesthetes who are running around being obsessed with poetry and beauty and all of these things. And he says, the novel's artists and aesthetes pursue their love of beauty in contempt of society as a whole. And yet, as Wilde tells it, society repays the insult with their fascination. The respectable bourgeoisie and nobility who populate the supporting caste enjoy being scandalised by the apparently antisocial pretensions of those who live for beauty rather than the moral and material good of others. At the very least, their attention seems to suggest that it is good that there are some people in the world who know what is beautiful and dedicate themselves to being its caretakers while the rest of us get on with everyday life. One does not have to read very far into the novel, however, to realise that this specialised love of beauty, in fact, serves beautiful things very poorly. It isolates them from the fullness of reality, including truth and goodness, and finally perverts the love of beauty into a love of sensation and self-enclosing narcissism. I love that. Particularly, I love the idea that this beauty is supposed to be part of our everyday life. Mm -hmm. That it can only be served and in its proper place when it's entwined with seeking the good and the true. Yeah. And that that's how we bring poetry Mm -hmm. in fittingly. Yeah. And that it, in its proper place, it will enhance the good and the true. Yeah. But in and of its own it becomes twisted. Yeah, and that it shouldn't be cordoned off as yeah. a as a as a preserve of a group of specialists who are dedicated to this aesthetic lifestyle that like actually what makes poetry really meaningful is its ability to speak to our everyday lives. Yeah, and that we 
live with these poems mm-hmm. and come back to them and they come back to us at the right moment. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect segue into talking about we Phoebe and I discussed would it be maybe a nice idea to pull out some of the poems that have stuck with us throughout the the years and the snippets and phrases that have have come back to us in various settings and scenarios. And so I think that brings us rather neatly back to the the start of this discussion which is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock which is a poem that I have had as part of my kind of mental furniture for a surprisingly long amount of time. I believe I have said this before on the podcast, but since I was a child, I have known at least two lines of this, which is that when my dad would come home from work of an evening, I would hear the door open and and like so many times he would open the door and shout up, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. (laughs) Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach, which is a set of lines from from this particular poem. And so it's so funny that like, (laughs) I just knew these lines, I grow old, I grow old. And uh, like, they just became part of the the phrasing and like as a, as a child the the you know it was catchy enough that it, it would stick in my mind and then they become part of my mental furniture from you saying them all the time right uh, yeah and i think it's interesting because we're going to talk a little bit about um poetry and being at school and learning poems but uh the, if you're not familiar with the Irish system, we, we do quite a lot of poetry study as part of our schooling and in secondary school or high school. Uh, and, and I think it's usually up to the discretion of, of some of the teachers earlier, but I certainly learned a lot of poetry in my primary school years and, and it was very much encouraged. But as part of our exams, we are set a certain number of poets and you don't have to study all of them, but you have to know at least a chunk of them so that you can answer essays on them. Mm-hmm. And they're on rotation, so there's kind of different poets each year, usually uh, within like a, a certain matrix of, of recurring ones. But occasionally you get like a more unusual poet. And, and one of the more unusual ones for my year was T.S. Eliot. And I remember everyone else in the class being like, oh, this seems so intense and so strange. And a bit like that Seamus Heaney article that we were referencing that like, it feels very impenetrable. But for me, I, I was like, I, I know T.S. Eliot. I've heard the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, or at least I've learned, like, I know, like, two lines of it. And so I just had that disposition of coming to it, being like, I expect this to be something that I like. I expect mm. this to be something that I'm going to enjoy. And because of that, I did enjoy it. And it began a lifelong love of his poetry that has really in some ways kind of transformed my life and I remember looking up they put out the statistics of who answered what questions in our leaving cert exams on on the different poets and I I, it might have even been less than one percent it might have been like 0.5 percent of people in the country that year answered on T.S. Eliot and (laughs) you can guarantee that I was one of them I might have been the only person to answer on (laughs) T.S. Eliot but um yeah I, I remember he came up on the exam and I was thrilled I got to answer about my favorite poet and because of that in particular I'm going to reference a couple of different T.S. Eliot works but this the love song of jail for Prufrock has carried on into my day-to-day life in so many settings in so many situations I was saying to Phoebe just before we started that like 
I remember being a teenager and feeling really awkward and not knowing how to present myself to the world and how to find myself at that age. And there's a line in it which says, there will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. And that phrase has just come back to me over and over again and even like throughout my life. And I think because the poem itself is about someone who feels very anxious about their own insignificance and their ability to make a difference in the world that I think it has really been something that when I feel nervous about kind of anything in life that it like when I I feel like things aren't going right or if I feel like I don't know what I want from from my life at that point whether it's a job that I don't feel certain about or a situation that I uh, feel like you know, the brokenness of the world is, you know, that you're always kind of trying to get to a point of feeling like you've achieved greatness and never quite getting there. And so there's lines in it that have just come back to me over and over again. There's, do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. And then later, though I have seen my head grown slightly bald, Brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and here's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker. I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker. And in short, I was afraid. I love it. I love the sound of it. Mm-hmm. It's just so good. And then the uh, deep ideas behind it. Yeah. that yeah. It just feels like there's so much in there that I can carry into my everyday life. Like there's even just a line where he's like, the speaker is sort of going round and round in circles. And at one point he just says, it is impossible to say just what I mean. Mm. And even that like little exclamation has been something that has come back to me over the years. When you feel like you have all of these thoughts and you're trying to get them out. And just that, that frustration that it is impossible to say just what I mean. And yeah. isn't it so fitting that that is just what I mean? <laughs> that like, like yeah. that, that poetic sentence is exactly how I feel at that moment. It's just been so moving to me to see how that, that poem has come back in, in waves and tidal waves throughout my life. Yeah, that's beautiful. I definitely, my English teacher in particular was very exam focused. Mm. And part of that was that he would encourage us to learn off the lines of the poem as we needed them mm. and like excerpts of them and I kind of had there were poems that I liked despite him or like the ethos of the class was not necessarily to enjoy poetry right and there were some that I was just like but I like this yeah <laughs> I'm surprised that I like this but I like this and I'm gonna learn the whole thing off anyway yeah And I think it's interesting, we've said that we were going to just talk a little bit about poetry in school, because I think there is a balance. I think, you know, it is surprising to me how much of the poetry that I still have in my brain is the poetry that I came across in school. Like, it's Mm -hmm. one of the few times in your life where you are given the time to learn things off, and hopefully at least some of it sticks. And there there is a merit in kind of being forced to sit down and learn a whole bunch of things, or read a whole bunch of things that you wouldn't otherwise read, or, you know... All of these things can actually end up being very good. And, we, and with a good teacher, it can be great from the off. Like you can have a really great experience.
experience as a young person coming across poetry. But equally, I do think that there is a flip side of kind of turning it into a mechanized churning mm-hmm. of like just producing student essays over and over again. Yeah, and I think there can also be maybe a love of darkness in poetry. Mm. that I was at least looking over a lot of what we studied mm. and reading some of them and being like, this is really dark. Yeah, it's almost... And even like remembering what we did in first year of secondary school. So mm-hmm. it was like 13 year olds and this was our like, main introductory to poetry. Yeah. And the two I can remember are two really dark poems and like the vividness of that. And there is still something really good in that. Um, like it is a way of encountering the world and the darkness of the world mm-hmm. but it also feels like there's something lacking there if there's an oversaturation of darkness perhaps yeah I think there can be a sense in which because poetry in some ways gets such a bad rep with people where they're sort of intimidated by it there can be a sense especially with teenagers to be like oh but look at how dark and intense and brooding this poetry can be as a way of almost like showing off what mm-hmm. poetry can do yeah and that's not necessarily to say that the poems are necessarily bad in and of themselves but you're right that like in a desire to shock people into interest in poetry that it can it can be a little bit overbearing depending on the on the curriculum that's set but that yeah I just think I'd be interested if any of our listeners had either super positive or negative experiences of studying poetry at school yeah and like even despite that there's still a lot of our poetry course Mm. that I have come away with and parts of it that have still echoed around in my brain yeah and I think a lot of that has been nature poetry which we were going to talk about as well Um, and two of the lines which They're not deep and meaningful lines, Mm. but they're lines that just come back to me on particular walks or when I see something. And one is from a Patrick Kavner poem called A Christmas Childhood. Mm. And it starts with the sentence, When side of the potato pits was white with frost, how wonderful that was, how wonderful. Mm. And just that repetition of wonderful, Mm. almost every time I see frost, that's going to come back to me. Yeah. Uh, And there's something of, like, linking that experience with an expression of it that has been given to me. Yeah, and that it elevates it and it gives you a language Mm -hmm. for interacting with this natural phenomenon that gives you these emotions. Yeah, and another one that I literally had to find by googling the word like googling the quote because mm. i couldn't remember where the poem was which is a poem called wind by ted hughes and the two lines of it that i would see this phenomenon a lot and it come back to me is the wind flung a magpie away and a black bat gull bent like an iron bar slowly mm. and it's that like visual image of a bird being turned in its course i think we see a lot of gulls around here and i would have grown up with a lot of black crows which is mm-hmm. still very like that and that linking of it to the storm and understanding the weather is something mysterious that's worth talking about mm. yeah that's beautiful and in a similar way there's a couple of like little snippets that I feel like have always sort of come back again and again to me in terms of nature and being on walks and those things uh, and one of them actually mine is also a Patrick Kavanagh quote uh this time for advent so you had you had the christmas poem i have the advent poem the line is we shall not ask for reasons payment the why of heartbreaking strangeness in dreeping hedges 
Ooh. And dreeping is a word he's, I think he's kind of made up there, although it feels so Irish. Maybe it is a, a, a kind of Anglo-Irish word. But it is so evocative of that very Irish experience of just a totally rain-sodden day where you're, you can hear the rain dripping from every branch and every leaf of every hedge that you're going past. And so I just know those misly, dank days with, mm-hmm. and the phrase dreeping hedges has always stuck with me. Yep. And then I remember there was a while when I was commuting for work and I used to have to get these very early train journeys and it was at the start of the year at this time of the year. And again, looking at the frost and looking at the light and I would always think of the start of Little Gidding, which is another T.S. Eliot poem, which goes, Midwinter spring is its own season, sempiternal though sodden towards sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic. Which is such a great use of sibilance of all of those S's. But again, I, you can tell that we live in Ireland because everything's sodden, everything's raining. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's frost, not snow. Right, right. But then, and then another one, which I have to again credit to my dad. He would say this every year, and I just love it. And again, and this is another one that's become part of my furniture because you say it so much. Yeah, and it's once again, it's T.S. Eliot, and this is actually his poetic play, "Murder in the Cathedral," which we talked about on a podcast. Yes, and is one of my favorite ever pieces. But it, it just at the very beginning of it, it says. Since golden October declined into sombre November, and the apples were gathered and stored, and the land became brown sharp points of death in a waste of water and mud. Ooh. And it's so perfect. Yeah. But it's funny how it's not even just the things that directly relate to our experience. As we said, Ireland is quite temperate. It's mainly sodden, dreeping hedges. (laughs) It's mainly uh, wastes of water and mud. But even, you know, and it's so iconic. It was funny. One of the articles that we were reading was like, oh, poetry is so easy to remember. Anyone who reads the opening of Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening will remember it. And I was like, that is the exact one that I had picked out. And this is one that we had to learn off when I was, I think, maybe about seven or eight in in primary school. And it's, yeah, it's just a totally iconic poem by Robert Frost. And any time, no matter what time of year, it's about seeing a snowy woods but honestly anytime I'm in the woods I think of these words and they're so evocative I think I'll read it out in full it's quite short whose woods these are I think I know his house is in the village though he will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow my little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. It's funny that I also pulled out a poem by Robert Frost about a wood. <laughs> I mean, a- another truly iconic poem. Yeah. <laughs> and again, one that I think about almost every time I'm in a wood, mm-hmm. particularly in autumn. And it's The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. And be one traveller, long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could, to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, just as fair, 
and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, in steps no tread had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. Yeah. I mean, these things... They just echo and have this haunting quality to them. Yeah. You know, and they're iconic for a reason. Yeah. And that there's also something worth coming back to things that are are iconic Mm. because they're not stale. Mm-hmm. Even if they might, you might feel like, oh, everybody knows that one. Yeah. But there's a reason for it. Yeah. And we're allowed to delight in those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that it's allowed to furnish your the paths that you tread around the spaces that you know. That like mm-hmm. it adds a, an extra element to your experience of those things. Yeah. And that there's also something in having those reference points for nature. Yeah. That it's one of the things in the Anna Green Gables book that she's forever pulling out quotes about nature mm-hmm. while she's in the wood. And I'm always like, oh, I wish I could do that. <laughs> Which is why you have to occasionally attempt to memorize a few bits exactly. here and there. And yeah, I think that kind of coming back to the idea of what we learned in school, mm. also like nature poetry, one of the things we did in Irish like learning Irish as a language, was we had to learn poetry and write about poetry. And one of those poems came back up again a couple of years ago. I think I saw it on Instagram. And I was like, I know that poem. Mm. I remember that poem. And there was something about the phraseology of it that has continually come back to me since. Mm. I think it was written not that far away from where I grew up and really resounds of... It's about a storm and the power of that storm. And then it's tiny with death. And Irish poetry tends to be obsessed with death. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of merging these two really big ideas. Mm. Um, So I'm going to read the translation first because I always like to have the meaning of something before I hear... Like if I hear it without knowing the meaning of it, it I feel it loses something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll read the translation and then because my spoken Irish sounds far more English, <laughs> um, Rachel's going to read the actual Irish version. So it's called Women's Christmas, which, which is Little Christmas or Epiphany, yeah. the 6th of January. <laughs> Yeah, this is a a particularly Irish celebration, which is that uh, on the 6th of January, the Epiphany, traditionally the women had the day off and it was their day to celebrate and their day to be kind of treated and pampered at the end of all of the work that they did for the Christmas season. So yeah, that's why it's called Women's Christmas. There was power in the storm that escaped last night, last night on Women's Christmas. From the desolate madhouse behind the moon, and screamed through the sky like a madman, making the neighbour's gate screech like a gobble of geese, making the swollen river roar like a bull. It quenched my candle like a blow to the mouth that sparks a quick flash of rage. I would like that storm to come again, the night I will be feeling weak, 
coming home from the dance of life, the light of sin going out, that every moment would be full of the scream from the sky, that the world would be a continuous scream, that I wouldn't hear the silence coming over me, the car's engine coming to a stop. And so in Irish it's called Iha Nolignaman. Vi fwynev systerim a egla a rare, a rare Iha Nolignaman. As gyaltak er gulta ta laster den rey, is the screak treed an spare quigin a galt. Gurgis gati koharsin mar gugalage, gurvur aurn chlaidonak mar haruv, gurvucha mochinel mar vula ermavale, as las na splank oben an farag. Bawatlan gajukach an sturdum shin fein, an iha gamed sagalag, eg ila awalia o rinka an sail, isolas an faka eg dalas. Galinfa gok nomad le lurig on spare, ganeinfag den downs gunnishgrad, is na clushin on cunis eg glushocht von yain, na inel on glushdon eg stad. Thank you. It's by a poet called Shauna Redon. But yeah, I love the like guttural imagery of it. Mm. Like the storm that escaped from a madhouse behind the moon. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the gates that are squeaking like geese. Mm-hmm. And then that linking to like light going out and the fear of death, then kind of adding an extra dimension to the storm, like this otherworldly nature of the storm. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it, it's, it, it is such a beautiful contrast of like, yeah, I want this howling wind so that I can't hear the, the stopping of my own life. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really beautiful poem. And yeah, I, I also study this uh, as part of my, my Irish course. And yeah, thank you for reminding me of it. It's been a long time. <laughs> Something that was quite interesting to me as a non-Catholic, mm. that like the idea of the light of sin going out, that it was someone who knew enough about the faith to know about sin, mm. but not enough to trust in the love of God. Yeah. You know, maybe that brings us to our kind of our last heading. We've done sort of the day to day and nature, but also that poetry gives us some language to talk about some of the bigger ideas of our Mm -hmm. lives that like death, like these these bigger concepts that we have to grapple with and that, yeah, that poetry can be part of our preparation for that and our exploration of that and our ability to grapple with it. Yeah, like one of the poems I picked out from our English course is by Emily Dickinson. Mm. Um, It's a very short poem. It's called Hope is the Thing with Feathers. And it just dwells on this idea of hope being an elusive thing um, and yet very durable. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Mm. I love the imagery of it yeah. to start with, like the warmth of that feathered idea, Yeah, but also the littleness of it. 
that it's not a big thing. Yeah. It's a small, sturdy thing. I love it. Yeah, it's it's such a, it, as we've said already, it's language charged to the absolute yeah. most. That like, yeah, the, this imagery is so potent in, in being so concise and so meaningful in, in such a small space. And also so carefully laid out on a page. Like yeah. she makes really clever use of like capitalization and dashes. Yeah. And it was one of the ones that actually taught me to pay attention to those things. Yeah. And and again, as I, I think I've made this point in the podcast before, that like reading aloud is so important, mm-hmm. you know, that like that and it's all the more true, like there's some poetry that relies more on, on how it's laid out on the page. But even then that yeah, that these things should be read aloud. Yeah, like I remember when I was reading Murder in the Cathedral mm. for a podcast and you were like, you have to read it aloud. Yeah. Like it has to be expressed in the sounds of the words. Yeah. Because I think you do that instinctively in your head more, but for someone like me who reads a lot of prose, yeah, it's very easy to just try and read the meanings of the words mm-hmm. and not dwell on the sounds of the words. Mm, yeah. And I think that's where, you know, Shakespeare is so good for this and it's such a good reason for you know there's a million good reasons to study Shakespeare but that like it's great that we have Shakespeare so central to your experience of studying English at, at, at a relatively young age because it's also drama so like yeah like you said Murder in the Cathedral is a drama it, it, it's to be produced on the stage and obviously so is Shakespeare he has his sonnets but the, the all of the poetry of his plays is part of that and that like when you're studying it, it I really hope that people are encouraged to read it out loud that like these things almost only make sense when they're read out loud and once again that you know Shakespeare is so great at giving you those sort of iconic phrases or sentences or speeches that grapple with such big ideas mm-hmm. in such memorable ways through poetry absolutely I always think if I studied for our junior cert, which is what you do, is the exams you take when you're sort of 14, 15. We studied The Merchant of Venice. And because of that, you know, my whole life, I've always had Portia's speech about the quality of mercy in my head, ready to go. It's something that has come back to me over and over again, where she says, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blessed him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest and the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute to awe and majesty, wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptred sway. It is enthroned in the heart of kings. It is an attribute to God himself. And earthly power doth then show likest God when mercy seasons justice. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm. I don't think I'd ever heard that in full before. Yeah. And it's because of, you know, the genius of how it's written. Mm -hmm. It's surprising how easy it is to learn those kinds of runs of speeches yeah like i've had part of hamlet's to be or not to be speech Mm. equally rattling around in my head yeah um that it was something that sure we had to learn parts of it off but it also just came so naturally yeah 
because we yeah, I studied Hamlet for the Leaving Cert, which is the exams you do when you're eighteen. Yeah. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Mm. Yeah. And to me, it always I know it's supposed to be grappling with the idea of life and death, mm. but it also just comes back to that idea of do we grapple with life? Like, do we engage with life? Mm. Um, or do we just let it buffet us about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's how much richer is your life for having that phrase mm-hmm. to remind you of what you should be doing with your life? Yeah. Yeah. And like, even things that feel quite remote or, you know, I just think it gives, you know, especially when you think of like the ages at which I, I kind of came across some of these things. There was a great poem that really struck me. And it, again, what a great insight into so many things at once. There's a poem by Michael Longley called Ceasefire. And what it is, is it, it never explicitly states it, but it is about the troubles in Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement and the ceasefires and the the work that was done to achieve peace and what that means. And how he presents it is he actually just relates a part of the Iliad where King Priam goes to Achilles to ask for the body of his son Hector back, which Mm. was pretty much my first encounter with the Iliad, which is, you know, in some ways like a a bit of a shame that like my schooling didn't include that really until, until that point, but that it was also a beautiful entrance into that world and something that I've become very interested in since then. But it was in this much more kind of, simple poetic meter that the first couple of stanzas relates just the dinner that those two have and like how they can kind of respect and admire each other and you know it kind of ends with Priam giving um, Achilles a compliment and it says he who had earlier said I get down on my knees and do what must be done and kiss Achilles hand the killer of my son And that, like, just such a succinct way to present the predicament faced by those who were in that conflict in Northern Ireland and and the ability to try and bring yourself to forgive people who had wronged you immensely and destroyed your life or the lives of those you love. Mm. And to show how what's being asked of you is to return to a level of respect and civility and you know have these interactions where you're having dinner with someone that like it's such a monumental ask and to present it in the way of of you know this very kind of quotidian scene of them having dinner together and then to juxtapose it at the end with what had to be done first in order to 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 reach that moment and it's always really really stuck with me as such a succinct way of describing what was involved in that conflict. And then I think maybe to to close us out, I have one last quote, which is, it's kind of a T.S. Eliot quote, but he's actually quoting the Dante's Inferno. So it's it's two layers of poetry at once. But I just remember uh, when I was in Rome, uh, it was actually a trip that you were on, but you weren't at that you you had left to go somewhere else at this Japan. point. Yes, you'd gone to Japan. And so it was my first time in the catacombs in in Rome and we were walking along and there's just so many catacombs and so many 
you know, stations for where the bodies of people lay. And I just kept thinking of this line that's in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which, like I said, he's also essentially quoting uh, The Inferno, where he says, So many, I had not thought death had undone so many. And I just Mm. thought it was such a profound experience to have that language to describe what I was seeing and experiencing, which was something very profound, this great historical reality that was being made present to me. And I was able to kind of understand it through the lens of this poem that I had read and 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 how that had come through layers of other poetry. That it just felt like a perfect encapsulation of and and yet this was something that I was just doing on holidays. So it was like the coming together of all of these, like the, the day-to-day and the big ideas and the history of poetry and the, you know, and the, the modern expression of poetry and all of these things had distilled down to this moment of me standing in the catacombs thinking, I, I had not realised that death had undone so many. The mingling of mystery and the mundane. Exactly. So... Wow. There we go. So that's our pitch for poetry. So hopefully your new year will be filled with poetry now that you're sufficiently (laughs) inspired by this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed us just pulling out random bits of poetry from our lives. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Hopefully it was, you know, something that you can relate to or maybe see if you have the opportunity to like pay attention to those snatches of, of quotes that pass your mind as you go about your day. Hopefully you're able to build it into your lives in some way, like we're hoping to try to do better as well. Yes. And, you know, maybe someone can check in with me at the end of the year to find (laughs) out whether I actually managed my New Year's resolution this time. (laughs) Uh, Nobody dares ask that question. (laughs) It's too uncouth. So since we've recommended a whole lot of poems in this episode, um, it's time to recommend maybe something else. Uh, so we just have our last question, which is, Phoebe, what are you enjoying at the moment? So in the theme of poetry, over Christmas, my mom pulled out a very old book of the family that I had perused and transcribed as a teenager. And it is a book of handwritten poems from the 1850s. And I was photographing every page and using that to document the actual like handwritten poem and then I had the transcription that I'd made earlier beside it and trying to put all that together into a document to just preserve it and be able to share it with other members of the family. But it was it's just a really beautiful book and really lovely to see their love of poetry. Particularly there's a it's called a flowery. Um and there's a lot of flower poetry in there. Mm. There's a lot of religious poetry in there. And then there's just like funny, silly poems, like one's called Ode to a Black Draught, which is about taking medicine, <laughs> like taking a black draught of medicine and hating it, but how it's making him, making him better, you yeah. know? And you've got like five stanzas of poetry just about that. <laughs> or like other ones just like, honour forget me not. Yeah. Or, um, so it's just really fun to see from all the way back then, people enjoying poetry and like lots of different people's handwriting because Mm. it would have been different people writing poems in it yeah some of which at least are transcribed not original compositions but others of which are just 
compositions. Yeah. And I know that because one is the acronym of the person's name who owned it. Right. Um, Very so, funny. like, you can tell that they're just... It's just people writing in poems that they've made up. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, so, yeah, I love it. That's great. I think since I've we've gone through a lot of very literary things in this episode, I will take something that's not even really uh, a, a thing that you can recommend. But um, I, for my thing I've, I've been enjoying at the moment is we threw a dinner party for some of our friends this week. And it just felt like a beautiful way to start the new year, just gathering my friends around and planning out a menu and sort of going all out and enjoying the process of you know, getting together the food and preparing it. And yeah, it was just a beautiful experience. Uh, one I hope to do more of in the coming year. And just, yeah, I guess a, a little bit of a plug for... I hosting. I, yeah, hosting. I don't know, old-fashioned dinner party. I don't know whether it was particularly old-fashioned, but it was a lot of fun. And yeah, just a, a reminder of all of the things that uh, make life meaningful, sharing food and time and laughter with friends it was just yeah a really lovely experience so I would recommend you know taking the time to host your friends when you're able yeah it was great uh and other than that I just want to thank everyone again for coming back and joining us in 2024 I want to thank uh there's been a couple of listeners who've reached out in the past couple of weeks just to say some very kind words about the podcast I just want to thank you once again for reaching out and to say that we're very much looking forward to the coming episodes that we have in the works and and in progress at the moment so thank you again as always for listening you can follow us on uh, Instagram Risking Enchantment Podcast you can usually find me online under the handle Seeking Watson Uh, you can subscribe to our newsletter on my website which is rachelsherlock.com and if you go to forward slash podcast you can find our newsletter there hi this is rachel from the future editing the podcast i just wanted to jump in before we sign off to make a quick announcement i wanted to let my listeners know about a pilgrimage that's being run by select tours to ireland which is taking place in october of this year the trip is being hosted by katie marquette of the born of wonder podcast who i've been delighted to have on this podcast several times and it's also being co-hosted by christy isinger who is one of the hosts of the Fountains of Carrots podcast for years and who I'm a really big fan of. So that's two great Catholic speakers who will be hosting the trip. Uh, They're going to be doing a tour of the country, including the Cliffs of Mower, Our Lady Shrine at Knock, Croke Patrick, Glendalough, and heaps more. Uh, And they'll also be doing a tour of Dublin, going to the Guinness Storehouse, the Book of Kells at Trinity College, St. Patrick's Cathedral, and I believe a literary pub tour. If I'm lucky, who knows, I might be able to cross paths with the group when they're in Dublin. So fingers crossed for that. But I'll put a link in the description for more information or to book your place and if you're listening to this episode when it comes out select is running a promotion for valentine's day it's uh, 300 dollars off when people sign up together from february 14th through to the 21st so hopefully this might be of interest to some of my listeners it sounds like it'll be a fantastic trip and i'm really grateful to katie for looping me in on this and yeah hopefully if you're going on the trip Do let me know. Uh, I'll be really excited to hear about anyone who's coming. And yeah, just wanted to jump in before we sign off uh, to let you know about it. Thank you. This has been Risking Enchantment. 
music by Kevin McLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.